Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're starting with the triennial, which starts actually at 31. Um, but I, but because 31 is picking up in the middle of something, I just want to start a little bit before there. So we're going to start at Genesis 30. <clears throat> so we, we see that um, Rachel is seriously upset that she is barren. Like all of our foremothers, her struggle is going to be with barrenness and her conception is going to be um, intervention by God, right? So all of the foremothers go through barrenness. They don't accept Leah. Um, so they just don't naturally have children. Um, and therefore, their pregnancies can be attributed to divine intervention. So um, Rachel says to Jacob uh, at the beginning of 30 um, that she became envious uh, of her sister Leah, who was bearing. And Rachel says to Yaakov, give me children or I will die. And then Jacob gets mad and says, like, what? Like, why are you talking to me? Like, can I take the place of God who has denied you fruit of the womb? So what does she do? She, we've seen this right with Hagar uh, and Sarah. We know this. We know this from documentation of the ancient Near East. We know that one option is to give your husband your handmaid. The handmaid births on your knees, which means the child technically is yours. The handmaid belongs to you. She bears on your knees means this person becomes your heir. They're adopted, right, by the by the matriarch. So here's Bilha. She'll bear on my knees so that I may have children. So she so Jacob goes to Bilha, who conceives and bears a son. And Rachel says, God has vindicated me, heard my plea, and so she names him Dan. Because Danani Elohim. All right. Rachel's made Bilha conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So that's already now at least 18 months, right? The two kids, pregnancy and delivery. That's at least, at least 18, 18 months. And it's probably more, right? They're, I'm sure they took some time in between. Um, I have prevailed, she says. So she names him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, so Leah's already had sons. She gives her maid Zilpah to Jacob as concubine. And when Leah's maid, and then Leah's maid bore Jacob a son. So that's another nine months. What luck, she names him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Now it's another year, right? So we're talking four years happening here in these verses. I want us to remember that. Um, women will deem me fortunate. So she names him Asher. All right, now here's where we're supposed to start. Uh, once at the time of the wheat harvest, Reuven came upon some mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Why do we care about mandrakes? Mandrakes in the ancient Near East were a fertility drug. So it's a root and it was understood to be a fertility treatment. So you would make a, like a, a tincture out of it, like a tea or a tincture. Um, and so uh, Rachel is desperate. Leah, Leah's got all these kids, all these sons by Yaakov. She doesn't. And so she begs for 
some of Ruven's mandrakes that he was bringing to his mother, who, if you recall, had stopped bearing sons. But she says to her, so Leah says to Rachel, was it not enough for you to take away my husband that you would also take away my son's mandrakes? Right. So what, what is she referring to? She's referring to the fact that that Yaakov doesn't love Leah. Yaakov doesn't love Leah. He loves Rachel. And and he knows she knows that he doesn't love her. So she's saying to Rachel, isn't it enough that you've taken my husband, which is ironic since he got tricked into marrying Leah, but, but whatever. Um, and Rachel replies, which you have to love this. I promise he shall lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So I just love the fact that Rachel controls where Yaakov sleeps. Rachel chooses where Yaakov sleeps and whether or not he will have uh, intercourse with uh, her sister Leah. So when Jacob came home from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him. And what did she say to him? You are to sleep with me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. All right. So does she say to him, honey, I'm going to make your favorite meal. And I'm so glad we're going to get this chance to be together and catch up on everything and how the kids are doing in school. No. She says, you're sleeping with me tonight because I bought you. <laughs> I bought you for tonight with fertility drugs for Rachel. Lovely. So this is incredibly amazing family dynamics. God heeded Leah and she conceived and bore him a fifth son. And Leah says, God has given me reward for giving my handmaid to my husband. So she names him Yisachar. Leah conceives again and bears Jacob a sixth son, a, a choice gift. She names him Zvulun. Last, she bore him a daughter and named her Dina. And of course, we know what's going to happen with that. Now, God remembered Rachel. God heeded her and opened her womb. Elohim at Rachel. Elohim at Rachma. This verse, Genesis 30, uh, verse 22 is what is written on the atara, the neck piece of my talit that uh, I was given for my 40th birthday because it took me a while also to conceive. And my Hebrew name is Rachel. So this verse is on my talit, just a piece of rabbi trivia for you. Um, so she conceives and bears a child and she says, God has taken away my disgrace. And so she names him Yosef, that God should add another son for me. So this always is very disturbing to me. Those of us who know this story, this is very disturbing. She names her son Yosef because she wants another kid. So she can't even really just be present to the birth of this son, the miracle that she has conceived and survived childbirth. She's already thinking about another son. And the reason it's so disturbing is those of us who know the story know she will have another son and she will die bearing that son. So here she is, you know, she has a baby, she has a son, you know, and she has it with Yaakov and she, she's already thinking about wanting another one. That second one will kill her. So it comes to the point where uh, 
Yaakov now has all these, he has this huge family. So now it's been years and years that he's been, we've already just seen six years happen right in front of us, six, seven, eight years, right? Um, let me go back to my homeland. So after Rachel bears, Yaakov says, I'm ready to go. Like, we're going to go. And where are they now? They're with Lavan. Where's that? Where's Laban? Where's he living? He's in Haran. Haran is in Mesopotamia. Okay. So this is all happening in Mesopotamia. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for well, you know what services I have rendered you. But Lavan says, if you will indulge me, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me on your account. We have no idea, right? What that means for Lavan. We can assume it's Mesopotamian pagan religion. We've talked about this with Sabina Tuval and her work. So we can just assume that Lavan's household is engaged in divination and all those kinds of things that, of course, Israel will be forbidden to be uh, engaged with. And he continued, name the wages due from me and I will pay you. And Yaakov says, you know, how well I've served you, blah, blah, blah. And they, they start to negotiate. And Yaakov takes all the spotted, dark, and speckled sheep, uh, and they continue to negotiate. And then uh, his sheep miraculously, he has this trick that he uses, and they miraculously mate and get more and more. And now I want to stop because I want to do something. All right. All right. I see we have some already he actually hates leah says barry the midrash definitely goes there the torah text yeah uses that she is unloved essentially do progressive jews consider bilha and zilpa matriarchs as well a very interesting question um there was an argument actually to to uh in our prayer book have it read um when it comes to Jacob and they put in the matriarchs, there was an argument to include Bilhah and Zilpah. And some people do some progressive Jews do um, because they, they, they're like, hello. <laughs> like, yeah, so they got adopted by Leah or by Rachel, but come on, like the, these are women, these are people, these are not, it's not property. Um, that may have been how it was understood in their time, but we don't have to do that. We don't have to understand them that way. So yeah, some people add them. I personally think it just got to be too much of a mouthful, um, you know, to say Elohe Yaakov, Elohe Rachel, Vileav, Bilha, Vazilpa. I think it just got to be too much. Um, but ideologically, for sure, they are matriarchs, um, but they didn't have the standing of the wives. They didn't have the standing of the matriarchs. They certainly did not have the power that the matriarchs had. Um, they belonged to the matriarchs. So there was a distinction in their time about their status, but, um, but yeah, there was a distinction. Okay. So I was reading Sarna understanding Genesis and um, he's the one who does the JPS commentary on, on this, on Genesis, each book has a different commentator. And when I was reading Sarna, it said, so it starts talking about this chapter. It starts talking about all these births. Um, and it starts talking about, you know, these, um, 
it, it goes to chapter 40. He quotes chapter 49 of Genesis, verse 28. All these were the tribes of Israel, 12 in number. And then he starts talking about looking at this chapter and seeing the beginnings of the 12 tribes, the confederacy that are the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, and I quote, the Hebrew tribes, all except Benjamin, arose and confederated in Mesopotamia. So this story is being retrojected onto people, but it's really talking about the origins of the 12 tribes. He, Sarna's arguing that if you look at the Torah text, they are all in Haran. So these tribes confederate in Mesopotamia, except Benjamin, because remember Rachel dies on the way back to Canaan in childbirth. So Benjamin uh, must have joined the confederation later. That tribe must have joined the confederation later. So he's arguing these stories actually recall the beginnings of the formation of the people, excuse me, the people Israel. So what does that mean? That means there are two Rachel tribes. There are six Leah tribes and then the handmade tribes. So there would have been tribes that, that traced their lineage back to Rachel and Yaakov tribes that traced themselves back to Leah and then the handmade tribes, most likely the handmade tribes had a lower status, which is why they get retrojected onto the handmaids, right? So you have a confederacy, you've got tribes that are stronger and you've got tribes that are weaker. Who's the oldest? Reuven. Historically, Reuven then would have, would have been the most superior, most important tribe but we know historically that changes, right? On his deathbed, right? When Yaakov's talking to the sons, he says, you lost your status, Ruvain, because you violated your father's handmaiden. So these are historical memories about Ruvain once having been a really important tribe and then losing, uh, losing that. So Mehmet's asking, handmaids are gare? So the handmaids would have been indigenous to Mesopotamia, where our foremothers come from. So they were not Gerim because there is no Israelite society yet. There's only Canaan. And you have Avraham and his clan that are Yaoist now, right? So there was no Ger. There was no status of non-Israelite because there's no Israel yet which is what we're talking about, right? So, so you have the handmade tribes lower, lower in status than the Leah Rachel tribes who would have been the highest status. Of course, the Rachel, the Rachel tribes. All right. So if you buy this theory of Sarna's that this is talking about memories of the original, you know, confederation of the descendants of these 12 people, first of all, it's unique in the ancient Near East. No other people then or forward use genealogy to explain their confederation. Only the ancient Israelites. 
So if you think about the founding of Rome, yes, Romulus founds Rome. So there is, there is a founder, a mythic founder that all of that is retrojected back onto. But they don't explain everybody else in that confederation as being born of brothers or sons of Romulus, right? Only ancient Israel uses genealogy to do this. So we can talk a little bit about what that might mean. But in any case, this is unique. Does it actually preserve some memories of these tribes having been descended from family, you know, some kind of regional family kin relation groups? Maybe when we're talking about Reuven, when we're talking about Dan, when we're talking about Naphtali, when we're talking about the tribes, when we're talking about these sons, they are heads of huge clans, heads of huge tribes that confederate and come together. We know that they're going to confederate and be in Canaan. Sarna is arguing based on the fact that they're born in Haran at, at, La, at Lavan's house in Mesopotamia, that this is the memory that these tribes arose, grew, and confederated in Mesopotamia, all except Benjamin who must have joined that confederation later, right? Because his story is that he's not born in Haran and Rachel dies on the way giving birth to him. So that's a memory that the Benjamin tribe joined later. Well, what does that mean? If they confederated in Mesopotamia, how did they wind up in Canaan as the Israelites? Sarna, you can tell just from the fact that he thinks this is historical, he's going to argue they, they confederated in Mesopotamia and they invaded and that's what we have in the story of Joshua. We have the campaign. We have the conquest of the land of Israel. That is historical memory for Sarna. And he's going to argue that's how these 12 confederated groups push in to Canaan and become the Israelites. Okay, Mehmet, you have a question? So if this confederation decided to uh, invade um, Canaan, there must be a reason why they had to leave Haran. So that is there, an excellent there must have point. Been, there must have been some sort of animosity over there where they came from. So, but remember, the story as we have it is that they leave Egypt, right? They, they experience slavery in Egypt. They leave Egypt and come across the Transjordan and, and conquer about, the land of I'm Israel. I'm talking about Sarna's version. So Sarna, interestingly enough, does not explain why they, why they need to conquer Canaan or why they leave Mesopotamia. So we, we know, what we do know is that they're in the late Bronze Age. So, so where do most people place this in history? Most people place this conquest. This is where we're going, people. Good morning. Um, you thought we were going to be talking about Jacob. So this is where we're going. You've heard me talk about it a lot. I've never really, we've never really delved into it. We're going to do that now a little bit. Judy thinks I need to teach a class on this. And I think she's probably right because we've talked about it around it a lot, but we haven't ever really dug in. So we're going to dig in a little. I don't have much time. All right. So um, I've prepared an article for you that you can read at your leisure. It's about 27 pages and it will go into all of the detail 
of each of the arguments about how this might have happened, what might be going on. Because you've heard me say it over and over and over again. I do not buy the conquest. I don't buy the conquest. I don't believe it happened. There's, there is very little archaeological evidence to support it. Um, and so that's what this article does is go into all that. I'm going to walk you through the basic four arguments for how this group of confederated tribes comes to be in Canaan, comes to emerge as the Israelites who are writing and telling these stories. All right. So Barry, do you want to ask something first before I go there? Um, yes. Um, I, from what I learned, uh, there was this uh, strategy by ancient empires to, uh, to relocate some tribes to serve, to serve as buffers. Uh, against the other empire. So we know that the, the Mesopotamian Empire was uh, at war with the Egyptian Empire. And um, it, it actually makes sense that, you know, these tribes were buffer tribes because we know that they were located not in um, Egypt per se, but in the Goshen land, which was adjacent. Um, All right. So we're, so that's part of one theory. There's many more theories, right? So that's part of one, right? Is that they would have been moved from northern Egypt, from Goshen, into Mesopotamia, into Canaan, to serve as a buffer between Mesopotamia and Egypt. That's definitely. Um, one possibility doesn't explain all of them. It doesn't explain. It doesn't explain them running from north to south, which which we know is what we have. We have Dan in the north, and we have all along that that King's Road that we talked about, all the way down to Judah. That resettlement plan does not explain, at least to my mind, does not explain the emergence of Israelite culture in Canaan for that the entire length. Of Canaan, um, so and why are the Semites? What are the Semites doing in Goshen? Where did where did they come from? Are, or who are they? Right. So it still doesn't really answer the emergence of ancient Israelite culture in the Iron Age, the beginning of the Iron Age. So remember, we're, we have Bronze Age, we have Middle Bronze Age, Late Bronze Age, Iron Age one. We really see the emergence of. Israelite culture in in Iron Age one. We know there was a huge upset in Canaan around the Middle Bronze Age. And so that's where the focus is. How do we get, how do we get, do, do, does this whole new group push in? Let's look at the theories. So this is the article I'm giving you, hypotheses in which Israel enters Canaan from outside. So one set of theories, they, there are variations on a theme. One set is to put at around 1220 BCE to put a conquest there for lots of reasons that you can read about yourself. That's where scholars have focused. The, the date, the problem with that date, that 13th century date where everybody likes to put the conquest is that we don't have archaeological evidence 
to support the cities that Joshua describes, the book of Joshua describes having been destroyed at that time. It's very twisted. It's very convoluted. Like all sciences, there's arguing everywhere. You can have your opinions. I have mine, but, but some are going to argue, no, we do have evidence for it. In these cities, other people say it's not enough evidence. There's not enough of those cities and the cities that would have been in the bronze age Canaan do not match the description that we get of Joshua conquering huge walled cities. That is not what we have in middle bronze age Canaan or late bronze age Canaan for that matter. So what, so what are these cities that Joshua is talking about? So part of the problem becomes the historicity of the Torah text itself. How much can we rely on the Torah narrative? This article I'm giving you is from somebody who was not willing to dismiss the Bible as evidence. So I just want to own that. He has a, a bias against throwing away the Bible text as evidence. He believes that's just, that that's a big move to say nothing of the history is preserved in the book of Joshua. Why would somebody just make it up? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would a people who emerge in Canaan write a story that says they come from outside of Canaan and they took the land? They're not native to the land. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, that there must be some historical memory preserved in the book of Joshua. If so, we have problems with the, the mid-13th century conquest date, and he's going to uh, outline those for you. So here's problems and methodology, yes? Then he's going to look at recent archaeology, so recent discoveries that he argues argue against, again, the 13th century conquest, which is what has been the most popular till like the 70s. All right. Here's another theory. If you don't go with a conquest, but you're still going to accept that the tribes come in from outside of Canaan, because how else do you explain why you have Israelites emerging in Canaan? You could have what's called the infiltration theory. So according to the infiltration theory, right, um, you don't have a conquest. You have some people pushing in from the outside, but so some newcomers, but you also have a shift within the Canaanite population from semi-nomadic pastoralists who people, to people who now want to settle down. So you have some people coming in from the outside, some newcomers, you also have a, a settlement change that people who wanted, who were semi-nomadic pastoralists, which are our stories about Abraham, right? And Jacob, we see with his sheeps and his flocks. Then they slowly infiltrate, right? And then they, they expand as they grow, as they become successful, they expand. And um, then there is armed conflict at some point, but it's way closer to the founding of the Davidic monarchy. When Israel becomes a nation state, then there's fighting. But until then, it's a slow infiltration. All right, so he's going to take you through what does, what does this argument presuppose and what's the methodology used to support it? Then he's going to look again at the archaeology 
and the nature of Israelite settlement. Where do we see settlements? Is there something to support that semi-nomadic pastoralists became sedentary city dwellers? All right. Now we have a set of hypotheses that suggest that Israel is indigenous to Canaan. So those of you who know me know that this is the one I most favor. A, probably a combination. I probably, I believe it's probably a combination of a lot of these things happening at the same time. Um, surely somebody pushes in with a story about escaping Egypt. Surely there's no reason to make that up. So most likely a, a small group has an experience of that. That's the peasant part of the peasant revolt theory. How do you get Israel emerging in Canaan? Why? Why would something shift so dramatically in Canaan? Mendenhall was the one who really put forward this idea that a group escapes oppression in Egypt, slaves who escape, they push in to Canaan with their story. Meanwhile, at the same time that they're having that oppression experience in Egypt as slaves, What's happening in Canaan is a lot of the, according to this argument, is that what's upsetting the Middle Bronze Age culture and, and, and explains some of the destruction of some of those cities is that the, the peasants who are suffering under Canaanite overlords rebel against that system. And that involves some armed conflict. That involves some skirmishes. That involves taking, right, they have, they have to live somewhere. If they want to live out from under the Canaanite overlords, they have to move somewhere where somebody's already often living there. Or this explains some early settlements that they leave the Canaanite overlords and they move up into the hills and, and found some cities. So that that's other people want to say the, put the, the conquering Israelites founded. So in this story, in the peasant revolt theory, those peasants who have suffered for so long under their Canaanite overlords, who are risking life and limb, think about the American Revolution, who risk everything to rebel, but aren't leaving Canaan, they, they join with this group pushing in that has this story of oppression and this story of Yahweh, their God, this invisible God who is not uh, who is not, who doesn't have to be in one place. Remember the gods at this time are local and they have control over their locality. This group has a new idea about God, that it's this invisible one God who can move around. This God can be in Egypt. This God can be in Canaan. This God can be in Mesopotamia. It's not a local God anymore. It could have started at Sinai my teacher of blessed memory, Tikva Frey-Markensky, wanted to argue that yud heh vav is the sound of wind moving through desert caves. Okay, it's a theory. So, um, right? So it could have been a local Sinaitic God, the God who lives in the mountain. That's where the covenant, right? God comes down on God's mountain. Think of Zeus and Olympus. God comes down on God's mountain, and gives this people the covenant, but this God can move. Now it's the God of everywhere. So this is a new theory. That's a great idea. If I don't want to be part of the Canaanite overlords, I don't want to worship Baal. That They're part of that system. I got this new God, Yahweh. 
So they join with the Yaoists who are pushing in and they take on that story of escaping oppression. They like this idea of a covenant. The democratizing effect of a covenant would have spoken to a peasant class that is in rebellion against a hierarchy. God appears to everybody. The covenant, everybody's part of the covenant. Women and children, even women. Imagine. So everybody's part of that covenant. It is a democratizing um, thing that would have been very attractive to people who are uh, rebelling against an oppressive regime, an oppressive hierarchy. Um, That term, Hebrew, is very close to what we see in the Amarna letters of the 14th century. Canaanite city-state rulers right, are dealing with Egyptian overlords as well. And they use this word apiru about people who are saying, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going to play this game anymore. We're not going to be part of this system. Those are apiru. There are people who want to connect apiru with Hebrew, with Ivrim. If that's true, then the apiru who are saying, no, thank you, I'm not playing this game anymore, would have been allied with the Yahwists and become... The Hebrews, it's a theory. He's going to point out why that theory doesn't work, right? Because he doesn't believe in this theory. He's going to assess that theory here. Other theories in which Israel is indigenous to Canaan. So Mendenhall put forward the peasant revolt theory. Finkelstein plays with Mendenhall and has some new ideas about it. It's not exactly a revolution, but they were nomads in the area who later settle down and, and are responsible for the emergence of these uh, Iron Age One changes. And you'll see that uh, this is where Barry was talking about, theory of displaced populations from the coastal plain. That's not Goshen, obviously, northern Egypt. But what another, another theory is that Inside Canaan, things are happening that displace huge amounts of the population. If you displace the population, you have major disruption, right? Think, remember, we've talked about migration. If you migrate, you've got to take somebody else's land unless you're going to settle something that hasn't been settled before and that there's nobody there. Well, that would explain the emergence of some of these, some of these cities. Then you have another theory which is Lemke talking about evolutionary Israel, that it isn't a revolution. It's an evolution that, that there are forces that are happening uh, within Canaan, that there's some pushing in of this other group. There's some changes going on within Canaanite society. Um, But the, but that there's a very long and slow evolution and lots of contact between semi-nomadic pastoralists, the folks who are settled, these folks pushing in, that there's a long evolution um, of them trading both ideas, material culture, all of those things that then lead to the emergence of, of, a, new, of a new culture, of a new identity as uh, Israelite. So then he's going to criticize all of these above theories because he doesn't believe any of these are the right theory. I'm not going to argue 
whether he's right or not. I just, I, it was a great article that dives really well into the strengths and weaknesses of each argument. That's why I gave it to you, not for his conclusion. His conclusion is that there was indeed a conquest. It just happened in the 15th century BCE, not the 13th. So that's how he can explain all of the archaeological evidence that's missing to support the other theories or the ways you have to ignore some stuff and apply other stuff to make any of these other theories work. He believes you don't have to do as much of that if you place the conquest in the 15th century, that it's way older. It happened way before, 200 years before 1220. Then he says you can explain um, a lot of the stuff that the other theories just don't uh, get to, but he agrees that we just, we don't have enough archeological evidence right now, but he wants to put it uh, 15, between 1550 and 1500 BCE. Um, I, I will let you decide uh, whether or not he convinces you. There are a lot of scholars who believe that we have to, we have to combine some of these theories to really explain. Otherwise there's too many holes. Like if you just take one of these theories, there's lots of holes. That doesn't mean it's not true, but it means we don't have enough evidence to say, okay, yeah, that's what happened, right? We're still guessing. So when you take a tell, you all know what a tell is, yes? A city that's been destroyed and built on and destroyed and built on and destroyed and built on. That's where they start digging is on the tell because they want to go down through all the inhabitant layers of a city to get to the bottom of it, <laughs> literally. So um, when, you, when you excavate a tell, you don't excavate the whole thing. You start, you, you, you have the tell and then from whatever evidence you have, whether it's from documents or letters or whatever from the ancient world, you then pick a part of the tell where you think you're going to get a lot of archaeological evidence, where you're going to get right pottery, shards, all those things that help you determine what culture that was. But you don't, you don't excavate the whole tell. So part of the challenge is, is the evidence missing from these sites because they're digging in the wrong part of the tell? Or is the evidence missing because it's not there? This is... This is one of the difficulties arguing from absence, right? When you say that theory doesn't work because we have no evidence, right? That that town was destroyed, blah, 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 at 1220. Is that because we don't have the evidence? Because we're digging in the wrong part and haven't found it or it eroded? That's one of the arguments that these cities, if they're destroyed and they erode, unless there's a lot of fire damage, you won't necessarily see in the archaeological record the the layer of destruction. And also if those stones are used for something else, somewhere else, which we call secondary use, you wouldn't even have the walls of the city left. Does that mean it wasn't there and that it wasn't destroyed or that we just don't have the evidence? So you can, you can see how quickly things become hard to argue or hard to prove, or you could argue against it. So the, the absence of archeological data our, that absence is very hard on arguments because what does it mean that it's not there? It doesn't mean it didn't exist 
Um, when you have evidence, then obviously that's great. You have a lot, you know, then you can work with it. Now you need to argue how it got there or what it means. Sure. But at least you have something. It's the absence of evidence when we have the story of Joshua and we're missing evidence to support it. What does that mean? How important is the absence? Um, and that's where a lot of stuff gets, gets stuck. Um, more questions than answers, says Mehmet, perfectly Jewish. Exactly, right? <laughs> so it's a lot of guesswork, um, a lot of theorizing. And of course, here comes the question, what does this mean to us as Reconstructionist Jews? Right, Bert, that's usually your question. I was, I was about to ask it. Right, I, I, Mehmet took it. Mehmet, woo, he's coming in on your turf, Bert. Other than historians. <laughs> right, so what, is, so what, what does it mean? Make? What difference does it make? Whatever what difference does it make? So, so that's a very good question. So, so there's a couple of things. First of all, mythologically, some people, and I won't name her, I see her on the screen, which is very exciting to me. Um, I won't say her name out loud. Some people, including when I learned this in rabbinical school, I was devastated. I was devastated. Wait, we weren't slaves in Egypt? Like, wait, what? Then what the hell is Passover for? Like, wh what? I was crushed. Why? Because I was very attached to the story that we were slaves, that we were nothing, that we were nobody, that we were oppressed, that we were marginalized, and we escaped. And not only did we escape, we escaped en masse and had this amazing experience in the desert. And then we come into Israel and we make this society based on equity and fairness and covenant and everybody matters. And you can't oppress your slaves because you were slaves in Egypt. Okay, well, what happens to that if you're a bunch of Canaanite peasants who rebelled against your overlords? Okay, that sort of works, which is, of course, I think why I'm drawn to that particular explanation, because it allows me to stay with my mythological truth that we were oppressed and we overcame that. And in reaction to that, we built a society that says you must love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You will love the gear. You will protect the widow and the orphan because you were unprotected. You know what that feels like. Torah says it over and over and over, 36 times. You will love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That goes away with some of these other theories. Amy. Anti Kaplan, who said the Torah is spiritual poetry, not history. But the spiritual poetry evaporates if that if it's, I mean, for some people, it evaporates. It, it, it's meaningless if that's not part of our actual foundation. So, of course, what I now argue is that what's important, sort of what Bert is saying, what's important is not what actually happened. What's important is how we can re, how we reconstructed our origins to be that of slaves who escaped Egypt and built a covenantal theology and, and a covenantal society based on justice and equity and protecting the weak. 
that, that what becomes important is that's our narrative. That's our story that we tell about ourselves. That's what's important. Not did we actually experience slavery, whether it's in Egypt, whether it's in Canaan, that, that we still have as our core narrative of founding as a people, this story of having been oppressed. And what that does then is it aligns us with the oppressed, not the conquerors, right? So yeah, we had a king, but the book of Deuteronomy that says you can have a king is filled with here's what the king can't do. And the king can't do this. And the king can't do that. Remember we studied this recently, right? The king can't have a lot of wealth. The king can't have a lot of women, brides, right? Meaning the king can't be making, can't be an empire, can't be making all these alliances through marriages, no. The king is supposed to write a Sefer Torah. Who, who comes up with that? People who align themselves with the oppressed and not with the king. People who want to put limits on the king and limit, on, and limit the king's power. That's what's important to me about our story having been that we were slaves in Egypt. Because the other thing it does is it says you can't otherize the oppressed, you can't say, well, if they were to just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, if they were to just apply themselves and work harder, they wouldn't be poor and unemployed and homeless, <laughs> right? Our story says you don't get to do that. It was you. You were unemployed. You were homeless. You were on the street. You had nothing. You. And the fact that you have what you have now is not because you earned it. It's a gift, and you misbehave, you create a society that's not expressive of protecting the widow and the orphan and the vulnerable. And what's going to happen? I will do the same thing to you that I did to the Canaanites. We see it all over Deuteronomy, right? That's what's important to me about the stories that we tell about our origins, the stories that we tell about our founding, not whether or not it actually happened. And, and to some extent, if it didn't happen, if it isn't a historical memory, we get even more credit, don't you think? Like if we didn't experience that, but tell that story about our founding, wow, that's incredible. If we did not experience slavery, if we did not experience oppression, if we did not experience overlords taking advantage of us, but tell that as our founding story, that that is crazy. But how amazing, right? That if we're indigenous to Canaan or if we conquered, but we weren't slaves, <laughs> like, but we're going to tell a story that says we were, who makes up a story that says you're weaker than you actually were, <laughs> right? Like, so it's kind of crazy to think well, there's, there's nothing there. But on the other hand, if there is nothing there, good for us that we made up a founding narrative that allies us with the vulnerable, not with the powerful. And that warns us, you only have a right to this land and this opportunity for sovereignty as long as you protect the vulnerable. The minute you don't, a tsa'aka, how many times do we hear this in Torah? A tsa'aka will come before me, says God. And the second it does, you're gone. You're out. You are only an amsegula. You are only a treasured people to me as long as you behave like it.
you don't behave like it, you are no different than everybody else in the neighborhood. No different. And, uh, and you know, I don't want to speak on, I don't want to step on Barry's toes, but there are times I look right now at Israel and go, really? Really? How are we doing? How are we doing with that? How are we doing with sovereignty and having a big army and a big air force? How are we doing vis-a-vis the oppressed? How are we doing? It's- yeah, I always teach my students, you know, where are the Assyrians? Where are the Babylonians? They all had the most powerful army in the area. Where are they? So is having the most powerful army guarantees uh, a survival of the civilization? No. What, what we're doing does. And so like, this is the eternal question, and we're having to ask it again as a people, is are we behaving differently well enough, right? Defending the weak and the powerless and the vulnerable. Are we doing that well enough to deserve sovereignty? That's a big argument within Israel. It's as big as the argument in this country. I can promise you that. Israelis are as divided as we are as Americans. Ask Israelis, do they support Netanyahu? Oh boy. And then be ready. Because you're going to get a really long answer, whether it's this way or this way, you're going to get an impassioned, long answer. Why? Because Israel as a society is in deep, deep conflict about exactly these values, just like we are as Americans. And they are just as divided and they are just as polarized. Um, And in some ways, it's even worse, I think, in Israel um, because of PTSD, Judaism, um, because of how many people are in Israel out of a sense of being dis dislocated right from where they come from and or they're there because there was not another choice because everybody was wiped out like what do you do when you're so much of your country right is experiencing ptsd constantly in every generation that comes there they're fleeing some crisis they're fleeing something horrible right um in barry's family's case it was communism russia right and and all the horrible things so you know it's not like most people don't run to Israel to say, yay, I'm gonna, some do, obviously, but a lot are there because they don't have better options. And so, so I think it's even worse than America in terms of just the emotional, psychological, you know, luggage that, that so much of that population is dragging behind them. Yeah, Bert. I, I, I'm going to come from a slightly different place. I think that trying to hook our early sacred literature to history really hurts us because we're trying to fit a round peg in a square hole. Say more. I don't care. I'm talking only personally. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't care if it's quote true or not. I'm not sure what true means. If somebody looks at the writing about our current, the current state of our civilization and is it quote true I don't know. I don't know what that kind of truth means. For me, Torah is spiritual truth, and I look in it for spiritual things. One of which is the history of our people, as we saw it, as you said. But trying to trying to reconcile it with quote reality that we could never do because we'll never know what really happened. You know, unless someone invents a time machine and we could go back. Or but so, sometimes we can lose stuff. Sometimes I'm only able to claim this as my spiritual text because I know the history. 
because I know what actually happened. I know what happened to women in that culture. Mm-hmm. We know. We know from Nuzi. We know from Mari. We know from ancient Near Eastern texts what the law was that Israel was living around and influenced by. That allows me to forgive a lot of these texts that otherwise I wouldn't know what to do with. Um, and so, so I'm not saying always, but, but sometimes for me, appreciating the text in its own, uh, uh, for some reason, I, I got to stop taking antihistamines. I think I'm getting historical in context. I think. Yes, thank you. Context. I swear, I can't find words. I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing with that at all. Right, disagreeing it's, with that at all. Appreciating right. it in its context allows me to reconstruct it in ways that sometimes I just can't otherwise. And sometimes, like you know, I've said, I don't need to defend those texts. They're, they're just from another time, another culture, another way of looking at the universe that I want nothing to do with. But when I can, I feel like I'm able to access a little more of the spiritual truth, knowing what the actual historical context was. Because what are they pushing against? We see slavery in the Torah and go, how can that be a spiritual text? They own slaves. The Hebrews own slaves. They were slaves. How could they own slaves? Right. But, but if you know that was the actual economic foundation of everything in the ancient Near East, you can say, of course, they own slaves. Everyone owns slaves. So now what does it say about owning your slave? Oh, right. Well, if we look at it in that way, it's protecting the slaves who don't have that protection in any other neighboring society. Now I can, right? Do you see what I'm saying? And it's not always true, but but it often works that way for me. I totally agree with what you're saying. I guess for me, as some people may recall several years ago, when Rabbi Wolpe said that Jews were never slaves in Egypt, people went completely nuts. Yeah. Is that if it were not, if it, there are some people who say, well, it's not historically true, therefore throw it all out because it's not true. So I've got a problem with that. I, I think that throws out the baby with the bathwater. But uh, I totally agree with you that, yes, we have to look at it clearly within its historical context. But if there were never any Israelites in Egypt, so what? It, it might, where I'm coming from. Yeah. That, that, no, doesn't, really. that does not distract, as you were saying, from the spiritual uh, content of the text. Anybody have anything final? Amy? Yes? One thing um, you've said before is that the Torah is written a thousand years after this really happened. Put yourself in our place. Do we Can we really um, put together a story of the Vikings coming to North America with some degree of um, uh, precision as to what they did, how they built their uh, uh, their villages, etc. Well, no, of course not. Uh, we're having a hard enough time figuring what the founders did with the Constitution, and so it's not surprising that this writing sort of recreates what they thought might have happened to make points. Sure. So some of that is definitely true. But remember, the Bible's written over a thousand years. So, so some of this is, people are going to argue, are our memories. 
that are transmitted over those thousand years. I hear what you're saying, but it's not all written a thousand years after stuff, right? It, right. Some of these JE texts, the really old stuff, Psalms, some of the really old stuff, right? That we believe that gets that gets represented here. Um, like that it's original. It's original stuff that, right, that then, then comes down. But, but I, I totally appreciate your point that, that a lot of these are retrojected, right, trying to imagine 12 brothers. There weren't 12 brothers, people. Wait, that's just not true, right? That the, these are stories imagining how we might be related to one another. Maura, your hands up. I'm the great dissenter here. I'm the one who always argues with Rabbi Amy about this. To me, to me, this is not details. This is like, this is a big deal. It's a big story. It's one that, you know, it's our whole, it's our whole thing, right? We were slaves. And I'm just saying to be told it never happened. It's all made up. You know, if today some group who is fighting for something that they believe in comes up with an art, a story that isn't true um, and then bases their whole thing on the fake news of it um, and then, you know, goes on for years that, that this is, they're so great because they created this story. I just have a hard time with this particular story. I don't care that there were 12 tribes or 10 tribes or three brothers but this story is a big deal to me not being true. That, that's just the way I feel. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. I sent more of the article last night because I know this is her big, this is, we've had this conversation a lot and I get it. I get it that it's really big. David? I a lot, uh, if I could just add, I, I understand what you said, Maura. I think a lot depends on what we mean by the word true. But Maura really needs it to be true, Bert. That's what I'm telling you. I've been arguing with her for 10 years about this. She needs it to be literally true. Literally, it had to have happened or it's fake. Look, I need it to be true because I clean my house from top to bottom. I change my dishes. I get ketchup that says kosher for Passover because I'm, I go to all, I'm remembering this, this great, you know, origin story of my people. So why am I doing all that? If it never happened, why, why am I doing that? I clearly Amy, failed to articulate it earlier, but I tried, David. Uh, Amy, Sorry, I'm, I'm, sort of, I'm sort of coming down, I think somewhere where Bert is, because I don't know why both stories can't be true. What what both stories? About being in Canaan and also being in Egypt and coming out of Egypt. Look, I've been to the Grand Synagogue in Egypt, in Cairo. It didn't get built in 1956. There have been Jews in Egypt for, I don't know, what, 1,000, 2,000 years. So what? I mean, both stories sort of can complement each other. I don't find any conflict in any of this. Well, well the only conflict is... The, our story is that we were in Egypt and we conquered Israel. We weren't, we were not Canaanite. We beat up the Canaanites. We killed them. We kicked them out. 
We took their well, cities. That right? may be apocryphal, and it, it, it's fine because it doesn't, it doesn't vitiate any of the beliefs that we have right now. I, I don't see this as actually that essential. It would certainly be essential if there was no belief that we were ever in Egypt. But I don't know why these can't be both. I mean, these are nomadic tribes living in Canaan, moving along the coast. Why not? Why didn't they just infiltrate? Why didn't they go down to Egypt? Why doesn't both stories exist and complement each other? Well, that's that's what I showed you in the article is there are theories that say pieces of each of these is probably the way it actually happened. Right. So I'm a firm proponent that it's some combination of all of this that probably happened, because I just don't see why you'd make up a story that we were in Egypt and escaped and. Right. I mean, it just doesn't make a lot of sense for an yeah, indigenous I, people to make up that. I've got at the ultimate authority because Lisa agreed with me and she's the ultimate authority. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. There you go. There you go. Done and done. What a girl, Lisa. All right. Uh, Judith and Mehmet, so you, your hands are up. Yes. I think I'm unmuted. Okay. Uh, I think what you said about what does truth really mean? From the earliest time as children that we start reading fairy tales, they're not true, but the truth is what you get from them. And I think that the, many of the stories in, in the Torah don't have to be true to be true. Yeah. The, the, the reason that the stories are so important is what they teach us. And we can have that teaching with a, a story that goes along with it to illustrate the teaching. And I think that's all we really need. I have an Orthodox son-in-law and he believes that not only every story is actually true, but that God with his hand and a pen wrote all the stories. Why? Why is it important? It's not important to me if they're true or not. Right. So, right. I totally hear that. You know, that's often where I come down. Um, but it's really important for Mora that it's true. Yes. And, I mean, so that's, and that's fine. Right. I mean, that's where we kind of just have to figure out for ourselves, where are we, right? It, where do we locate ourselves in relationship to quote unquote fact, quote unquote truth, right? And that that's just really important that we all understand where we are and that other people are in a different place. Mama? Um, I really agree with Judith. Um I think the Jewish idea is far greater than any historical truth. Um, right. Consider the, tr- the historical truth, truth of greater nations like the Romans and the Greeks and the Ottomans and whoever you know has lived before us. In this country today, just as of last week, they rewrote his- history textbooks about a certain period in Turkish history that has happened 90 years ago. So they rewrote Turkish history about something that has happened 90 years ago. Can we imagine how many times history, in quotes, has been rewritten by people? None of the uh, historical truths or facts are as they happened in those times. Everything has been rewritten. So in that sense, I think the Jewish idea of, of, of identity, of story, is still present, is, is still live with us. We are one of the smallest people on earth, but we prevailed. We, we are still here and we will always be there. 
I think that the Jewish idea, the Jewish idea kept us together. I don't care if, if certain things happen that way or the other and where we come from, but we exist. We do exist in, in our minds. I think that's the most important thing to me. So, um, so Emma Linda writes, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten, quoting Chesterton. And then she apologizes for um, conflating those, but she, you're exactly right, Emma Linda. So that's, you know, that's kind of right. It, it, it's about beating the dragons, right? And so it's like, you know, that the oppressors can be overcome if you build a society that protects that protects against that kind of oppression. That's exactly the truth of the story. Our narrative, our Exodus story, um, whatever the facts are, the you're exactly right that it's about the dragons and, and right that you you don't want to be the dragon. <laughs> so create a covenantal society where justice and equity and compassion and forgiveness, like all those things and equity and, and equity, equity, equity. Everyone is created in the image of God. Every Israelite matters. Treat the gear well. One law for you and the gear. It's no different. The gear gets to rest on Shabbos. So do your slaves and your cows, right? That That's the answer to not being the dragon. That's that, that, and that remains true regardless of how we got there. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.